Did you ever grow up hearing the statement, you look like Uncle Bob, or you act like Aunt Frida? I don't know about you, but I've, I've heard that growing up, and now that I have two boys, uh, I am seeing different characteristics in them. Even Noah, who's almost four weeks old, there, there are things about him that remind us of different family members, whether it be on my side of the family or on my wife's side of the family. Uh, we're seeing those things come to pass, and as they get older, I'm assuming we'll hear more about, you know, you, look, you act just like your Uncle Eric, or you act just like, you know, you, you got the temperament of your Aunt Stacy, or something like that. Um, so we're going to see that eventually. And as parents, we, we like to point out those qualities, don't we? Uh, uh, when, whenever um, my mom and or my in-laws get on the, the video call with us when we chat during the week, we often hear, you know, your, your Uncle Eric used to do that, or your Uncle David used to do that. And sometimes it's like, okay, stop with the comparisons. Because <laughs> it, 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 it's, it, it's, while it is true, it seems like especially grandparents like to point those things out um, and to, to notice those qualities. Well, when we think about the church, and we've been doing that the past several months, we now get into the section here in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul is going to talk about, okay, what is the church? And when we think about the church, we need to think about that there are some expectations that God has for his body. There are some expectations. Just like as we think about, as I think about my kids growing up, there's going to be expectations that I have for them and, and qualities that I see in them that can be traced back in family heritage. We as a church have some expectations that God has for us. I want to lay out for you this morning from this passage of Scripture that you and I are to live like the church of God. Live like the church of God. And you say, Pastor, how, how are we supposed to do that? And we've come through three chapters of sound theology and just rich uh, biblical undertaking. So how, how do I live this out, Pastor? How do I live like the church? Even last week we were talking about be the church, and now we see the challenge to live like the church. Well, I'm going to give you three expectations that God has for us from this passage of Scripture and how we can live like the church. So the first one comes from verse 1, and that is you behave like you belong. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. You behave like you belong. Notice please with me that this instruction is only possible by the work of Christ. That word, therefore, we see it a lot in Scripture, don't we? And the reason it's there here in chapter 4, verse 1, is that it points back to what was discussed in chapters 1 through 3. The great doctrine that Paul talks about, how God has saved us and given us all these spiritual blessings. He made us into one new person with Jews, so that we are now His church. He is the cornerstone. We're built upon the foundation of the prophet prophets and, uh, and apostles, we are to live together and worship together. God has saved us and blessed us so that we can form this new body. We're no longer known by our ethnic boundaries, but now by our spiritual faith. 
And all of this is because of Christ. Paul uses that one term, and we don't really think about it too much, but he uses it to show how important theology is to the life of the church. And so we must never forget what God has done for us in Christ. You know, that's a challenge, that's a message in and of itself, right? How easily we forget what God has done for us, and Paul uses that one little word to spark in our minds the need to remember what Christ did for us and the work that He has done. And really, we could say that chapters 4 through 6 is the practical section of Ephesians, but chapters 4 through 6 do not exist without 1 through 3. You know, we cannot live like the church of God, and as we discussed that over the next several Sundays, we cannot live like the church of God without the theology backing that up. It's like telling a person to run a 5K and then cutting their legs off. You just can't do it. Remember how important, and I know the word theology sounds big to you, but please remember that what God has done for you in Christ, the theology, the doctrine of the Scriptures is important for your life, for our life as a church. It's only possible because of what He's done for us. Always remember that. In this verse also, there's a warning, I think, that this instruction can be neglected. This instruction can be neglected. Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. He's calling back this this idea of him being in change. He's not doing so as, as as a detriment to the Ephesians. He's not asking them to think sympathetically with him. He's just being mindful of where he's at. He's not a prisoner of the Romans. He's a prisoner of the Lord. He's ultimately there because God has placed him there, and so he's encouraging his readers as he is not a prisoner of a situation. He's a prisoner of God. He's held captive by God, and so he's going to do what God wants him to do. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. The word beseech here means to encourage or exhort. Paul wants, it, Paul wants uh, the readers, and he wants us to take action on what he's going to say. It's, it's like a teacher encouraging students before an exam. If you remember exams, going back to high school and college, you remember, you remember uh, going in and, and you, know, you saw on the list when the exams were going to be and you had to learn all this material. And oftentimes what happened for me was I would make a study list and I would print that up. I remember one class for counseling in Bible college um, was a big test. And so I made a study list. And eventually what happened is I printed it up for a lot of people and said, hey, you want a study list? You want a study list? Why do, why do teachers come up with those things? They want you to be prepared. They want you to be ready to take the exam. They're not putting it on the schedule so you can fail. They want you to succeed, and they will encourage you by taking time perhaps in the class or preparing a study outline for you to follow so that you can know, okay, this is going to be on the test. This isn't going to be on the test. And Paul does the same thing here. He encourages us to take action on this point. And he wants them to take specific action. You know, he says, I beseech you. So he's getting really personal here. Personal not in his address. I mean, you look at the original language, 
the, the word I is very specific in here, so he's, he's taking time to really think through what he's saying and just be in personally involved in his exhortation. He wants his readers to be, understand he's fully vested in what he's about to say. Paul isn't abstractly just saying, okay, guys, you need to do this, and he says, no, he's using his personal appeal to them to understand that this is important. You guys need to do this. I would also say this is a warning because of just the, the, the grammatical structures of this first part of the sentence, I beseech you, is not a commandment. It's, it's, it expresses a wish or a desire. And it means that there's the danger of not doing this, of what Paul is about to talk about. There's a danger of disobeying. There's a danger of not fulfilling the obligation. Our ever-present sin nature likes to avoid anything to do with God and the church, doesn't it? How many of you struggle to get up this morning and come to church? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But our sin nature likes to struggle with that, right? We find this consistent pattern of struggle in our lives because we still struggle with the old man. We still struggle with the old way of life. And the old way of life doesn't want to do anything with God. So there is this danger of not doing what God wants. So if the old man, the sin nature, doesn't want to do what God wants, so why would it be interested in doing something that advances God in the world? And so Paul uses this little encouragement. He's expressing a wish or a desire for the Ephesians and for us to take action on what he says because there is the danger that we won't. How many times have you and I sat in a sermon knowing we need to do something? We need to take action on something that the pastor was preaching on and we left the church not doing it. I don't want us to leave this morning not taking action on what Paul has to say and encourages us to do. So be aware. It is a danger not to follow through. Third, this instruction to behave like the church requires a unique commitment. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. The word walk here is used in the Scriptures to refer to one's way of life, to conduct yourself, to live. And the New Testament uses this term consistently talking about the walk, the lifestyle of the believer. Paul is concerned how the Ephesians live their lives. And again, I want to draw back to what he says by using the word therefore. It is important to understand how impactful theology can be on daily life. If I do not work out my theology in life, then it shows that my theology really does not mean anything to me. You ever think about that? If you do not live out your faith, if you do not live out what you believe in daily life, then it shows that your faith, your theology, your doctrine, according to the Scriptures, doesn't really mean anything to you. That's a serious thing. So Paul here is challenging his readers and he's challenging us to remember that what we're doing is, requires a unique commitment because it's important to our very lives. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live worthy. The word worthy here means in a manner worthy. There's the commentator, a commentator read says this, none of us is worthy. 
but we can live in a worthy manner. I think we've seen that through chapters 1 through 3. <clears throat> God has done this for us in Christ, but we're not worthy of it. Are we? we are not worthy of it. We are not capable of fulfilling the obligations, but yet God has done this for us. And so we, cannot, we can live in a worthy manner realizing that we aren't worthy of what He's done. He says, writes about this in 1 Thessalonians 2.12 where he's encouraging the Thessalonian believers. He says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Live worthy. To live worthy of what, Paul? Well, he says live worthy of the calling. What is the calling? It is the invitation to experience a special privilege and responsibility. Here is the, a calling with a purpose. And the word calling here is not describing a salvation call. It is the call on the life of the believer in context of chapters 1 through 3. And what is that? God has put the Gentiles in the church together with the Jews, and we are to live together as one. That's the calling that Paul's talking about here. We are to live worthy of that calling. God has taken two distinct ethnic groups and put them together to live life and to worship Him. That's the calling to which you and I are called. Now, obviously, in, in, our, in our culture today, that, that is not much, uh, as much of a distinction as it was back then. But it's still something we're called to. To live together as a church, as people coming from different backgrounds and different ideologies and coming together as one, we're still called to live as the church. That is our calling. And notice at the end of verse 1, with which you were called. The, the construction of, the, of this phrase is designed to show that this was done by someone else, that being God. God has called us to this calling the Ephesian believers didn't appoint themselves to this calling. They didn't say, hey, okay, now we're going to live like the church of God. We're going to come together with these Jews and do God's work. No, this was something God did in the past. The God of the Ephesians called them to this position, and they are encouraged to keep up with this calling in the, presence, in the present. God called them in the past. He encourages them to keep living like that in the present. Walking worthy of the calling to which you are called. It leads me to ask this question this morning as we think about walking worthy of this calling. Does your life demonstrate that God has called you to live like the church? As you think and you and reflect uh, on God's calling in your life and, and salvation and now calling you to be part of His body here in the church, does your life reflect that? When you go out in daily into your job where the, where the struggle is real, where you're tempted to let it fly, where you're tempted to uh, be upset at everything is going on, are you showing that you are living like the church? Or are you showing that you're living like the world? Paul lays out for this his challenge here in verse 1 to make us realize how important it is to live like the church in our daily lives. He wants us and God desires us to walk worthy of that calling. Are you doing that? Would someone look at your life, perhaps another believer in the church, and say that person is worthy of, of, the, of the walk, of the life they're lived, they've been called to by God? 
or are you unworthy? Are you acting in an unworthy manner? Secondly, how, do you, how can you and I live like the church? The, third, the second expectation I have for us is that you practice Christ-like character. Verses 2 and 3, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You practice Christ-like character. And there's several characteristics that Paul mentions here. We'll go through them. He says, humility and gentleness are to grace your responses. The word humility is a good translation here. It means to be humble, to be modest. And this was something that was quite frankly looked down on in Paul's day. If you read the, the writings around that time, the philosophers, the religious writers of the day, they upheld pride. They upheld accomplishment. To be lowly was a negative in their minds. That was something that was some, for, for those who weren't worth anything. They were the humble ones. But to be proud and, and relish in your accomplishments, that's what you were supposed to do. That's something that's kind of not as much at the forefront today, but still, pride abounds in our culture. You rarely see a humble person in leadership. More oftentimes than not, they're proud and they're, they're advancing their accomplishments and they're tooting their own horn. But that's not what we're supposed to do as the church. We, we are to be humble, putting others first in front of ourselves. Gentleness is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. The, the idea here is not being obsessed with yourself. Not uh, putting yourself in the highlight, realizing that you have nothing to offer. Another way of translating it is meekness. It can be translated humility, but I think the commentators, and I think they're right, do you notice that this is a gentleness towards others, which is motivated by humility rather than pride? You know, when a person is proud, they're going to make things about them, aren't they? You know, it's going to be all about them, their accomplishments, and they are going to use people to their benefit. That's pride. Humility, putting others before yourself, not being impressed with yourself, realizes that, hey, I've got a long way to go, and I want to encourage others on this journey with me, so I'm going to put them and deal with them in a gentle way. I'm not going to treat them like they're just things to be used and then toss them aside when they're done. Humility and gentleness. Having a humble attitude that doesn't think highly of yourself more than you ought to, and gentleness, dealing with people in a gentle manner that is meek and humble. So, humility and gentleness. He then says, with long-suffering, the idea is patience here. So patience is your preferred attitude. Here the word long-suffering means the state of being able to bear up under provocation. Patience is an enduring attitude which labors on despite opposition or hardship. Paul writes about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. He says this, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul uses that, that term there to point to Christ as the exalted, ultimate example of patience. Enduring 
wrath and anger against him, he continued on even though it was hard. Patience is your preferred attitude. I don't know about you, but that challenges me. Because <laughs> there are times where I'm not a patient guy. With two little boys at home, and there can be times where my patience is tried, and, and, and believe me, I fail. I fail. But when I think about living like the church of God in our world today, I need to realize that I need to practice this trait even more. So that when my son is is just falling on his knees and just wailing and crying, all sorts of things. I have to realize I have to be patient with him and not get upset with what he's doing. He may just need dad's attention. Or he may be hungry. He hasn't had breakfast yet or whatever. I need to be patient with him. I need to endure even though it's hard. Can I ask you this morning by way of an application? Do you have a patient attitude? We live in a world, I see a few of you shaking your heads no. But may I encourage you to have that attitude? We live in a world that is very impatient, that wants things now, that when hardship comes, tends to lash out in anger and frustration. But can you and I have a patient attitude that even though it's hard, even though things are opposed against us, even though things might not be going our way, we can still have that, that attitude of continuing on, being patient with others as we seek to live like the church of God. So if you're struggling with that, ask God, God, give me a patient attitude. Help me to be patient with my family, with my, my friends, with my siblings. We've got some boys and girls here this morning with us. Guys, I know what it's like to grow up with, with, with siblings. Sometimes I really try your patience. But guess what? You can be patient with them. Another characteristic that, that Paul lays out for us is that differences between believers are acceptable to you. Bearing with one another in love. The word, the word bearing with means to regard with tolerance, to endure. And the construction of the word puts the responsibility on the subject, and the subject in this case is the Ephesians or us. We are to bear with one another in love. Now the idea here is not, just, not just, just having to get along with someone. The idea is they have a different opinion. They have perhaps a, a different characteristic. They carry themselves differently. It may not be wrong. And instead of letting that irritate you and frustrate you, you tolerate it. You say, okay, that person's different than me. They have a different viewpoint. They perhaps do things differently than I would do them. That's okay. And that's the attitude that you carry with you. And you do it in love. The word love here, again, is self-sacrificial in nature. It seeks the benefit of others before itself. So in a church where there are multitudes of opinions and personalities, we all have them. That's a good thing. The believer seeks the benefit of those who may or may not agree with him or her on minor issues thereby tolerating them as they exist together in the church. I mean, think about this for a minute. Bearing with one another in love. You think it's hard in our day. Imagine back in their day when you're bringing two very distinct ethnic groups together, people who have different opinions, different philosophies, different way of doing things, bringing them together to live like the church. Imagine how hard that's going to be. Where you're a Gentile and you think that it's okay to eat meat offered idols and you're, you're, you're laboring with a Jew who thinks otherwise. 
Or you're a Jew who, who thinks that you need to observe all the, the special days and you have to exist with a Gentile who thinks, eh, every day's the same. How about in the church today where you have one opinion that the election wasn't fair and the other one says, no, it was. And their tension there exists, but you have to realize, hey, they're okay with, they, I have to be okay with their opinion even though I may disagree with it. Bearing with one another in love. You may not agree with that person. You may struggle to get along with that person, but you still tolerate them. It's okay. You can bear with one another in love. Are you accepting the differences between other believers? Do you have that attitude of walking into church on a Sunday morning realizing that, hey, I might not agree with so-and-so, but I love them and we're going to get along? That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to bear one another, with one another in love. It's okay to have differences. Especially differences on issues that really don't matter. The last uh, characteristic that Paul mentions here is peaceful unity. So peaceful unity with the brethren is your goal. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Some things to note about this phrase. Endeavor means to especially be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation. There's a mouthful. It can be translated zealous, eager, take pains, make every effort, be conscientious. The construction shows that this is a continual effort. So it's, there's always to be an eagerness to be unified. And I would, I'm going to illustrate eagerness this way. Growing up, and I'm sure you can identify this as well. Chores were not fun. But we had to do them. My mom is here today, and I, she's smirking because she knows it's true. Chores were not fun. But guess what? We had to do them, right? And when chores weren't fun, you, you really had this attitude of slowly moving, slowly doing it, you know, kind of slouching along, just moving along. You know, and then finally, after a few hours, you got them done, probably with a, a couple urgings from your parents, you finally got them done. So that attitude of just kind of, oh man, I really don't want to do this, is not the attitude Paul's describing here. The idea is, again, using the chores illustration, when mom would give you chores, oh yeah, I'm going to do them, and you do them quickly, you're eager to do them, and that is your whole focus, which I know for many of you are seeing back in the, in the room this morning, yeah, that wasn't me. But that's the idea here, is eagerness, willingness, being zealous, being passionate, if you will, to be unified. And to keep that unity. The word keep here means to, to uh, cause a state or condition activity to continue. The emphasis here is on holding on to something so it, doesn't, it is not given up. So we're supposed to hold on to and, and be eager to hold on to that unity. The word unity here means that's the harmony, being in one accord. So we're holding on to that, that unity and strive to keep it. And it's a unity that is kept, that comes from the Spirit of God. So He brings the unity and peace that we desire. It's not, not our own working. It's not our own way of doing things that brings peace and unity. No, it is a result of the Spirit work in our lives. The unity is described in Psalm 133, verses 1-3. through three. Behold how good and pleasant it is, and brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the he- beard of Aaron, 
running down in the collar of his robes is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. Unity. Being together, being of one accord, of one mind. We're to strive to keep that, to maintain that, to be eager to be unified. And is kept in the bond of peace. The word bond here is, is the idea of, of strengthening relationships. It's bringing various entities into the into the the fold so that it can be one relationship and that bond is peace. Tranquility, calmness between one another. Peace is to exist between believers and that's the binding agent of unity. Unity exists when believers are at peace with one another. When you walk into a church setting and, and you see everybody talking to one another, being pleasant and getting along, you can tell there's some sort of peace there, and as a result of that, there is unity. We definitely have that here at church. I, I, when, we, and as we, when we were candidating everything and, and filling the pulpit, we noticed a sense of unity. Even though there was some struggle, there was a sense of unity, and the reason was you were at peace with one another. There was no fighting, there was no arguing, there was no disagreement. There was the working, the unity of together that is a result of being at peace with one another. And that leads me to ask the question before I get into my main uh, point of application. Are you working to be unified with your fellow brother and sister in Christ? Are you working at being at peace with them? Again, there are differences that exist between us. There are differences and disagreements that we have. But Paul says, as you're bearing with one another in love, keep working at being unified. Keep working at holding on to that unity by being peaceful. That comes through the working of the Spirit. Let that do its work in your life. Are you working at being unified with each other? So I ask this question, are these characteristics real to you or just theory? I don't know about you, but sometimes I come to these characteristics and other challenges in the Bible and I think about them. And, you know, I've sit and sat in services and I've agreed with the pastor and I said amen or whatever it might be and I walk out unchanged. I walk out not being transformed to be more like Christ. So I ask this, are these real to you or are they just theory? Do you need to work on patience? You, do, are you agreeing in your mind that, hey, I need to work on these things. Now are you willing to make this a commitment? Or are you just saying in your mind, oh, that's nice. Yeah, I'll work on that someday. No, Paul wanted them to work on this now. Are you working on these things now? That's how we live like the church. We're not just theorizing. We're not just speaking in a hyperbole so we can get a point across. We're Speaking so we can get life going. So we can use these characteristics and apply these characteristics to our lives. Is this real or just theory? Then finally, the last expectation that Paul has for us here in these verses that God has for us is that you maintain unity because your faith is based on it. There is one body, verse 4, and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. It's interesting that these last three verses lay out 
the Trinity for us. Spirit in verse 4, the Son in verse 5, one Lord, and the Father in verse 6. And so we're going to look at the, the, this, this unity in these three persons of the Trinity. The first is that unity is found in the Holy Spirit. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. The Spirit here is emphasized as having baptized a believer into the body of Christ and has made everyone one in that body. We saw that earlier in the chapters 1 through 3, talking about how God has taken two distinct people groups and made them one. That is the result of the baptism of the Spirit. Going back to chapter 1, verse 13, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. The Spirit baptizing you, possessing you, and making you into one body. And just like the Spirit has made us one together, the Spirit Himself is one with the Father and the Son as He works in the life of the believer. They are all one together. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. What does He tell? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We, the Spirit, is one. And God has called the Spirit, God through His Spirit has called the believer into one hope. The word called into one hope, the idea here is, is, is the, the idea of the word hope means an eager expectation that God will do what He has promised to do. The hope is, encompasses all that God has promised from salvation to eternal life with Him. We've been called by the Spirit. God calls us through the Spirit to that one hope, being saved, but also experiencing the blessings of the Christian life and the ultimate blessing of being with Him forever. That is the one hope that we are called to through His Spirit. Unity also is found in Christ. One Lord. One Lord who has died for all and is the master of every believer who serves Him. We don't serve multiple masters as believers. We serve one Lord, one master. There is one faith, right? One faith that Christ died for all to have. That is the result of his work on the cross is that we have one faith. It's not multiple faiths, not multiple ways to get to God. There is one faith. And that is the faith that Christ died on the cross for our sins paid the penalty so that we might have access to the Father through Him. There is one baptism. The baptism that points to the work of Christ in the life of the believer. This is, this is not the physical baptism that we know and that we celebrate, but this is spiritual baptism. It's the baptism of the Spirit into the body of Christ and the result of His saving work. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The Spirit baptizing us from as a result of God's saving work through Christ, making us His own. Unity found in Christ. And then finally, unity found in the Father. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. 
God is one. This recalls to mind Deuteronomy 6, 4, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one. God is not diverse in His manifestations. He is one. He is not many gods. He is one. There is only one God and one God who is unified in and of Himself. Which leads me to say, aren't you thankful there is one God? And that He in Himself is one. So that when you and I worship as we are doing this morning, we are worshiping the one true God who forever exists as one. Unified. He's also the Father who created everything. That's the idea of the, word, the phrase, Father of all. God created everything, Genesis 1.1, and everything exists under His control. And He is one, He's unified in that. And He is unified also in all that He does. Who is above all and through all and in you all. This, this isn't a statement of pantheism, the idea that God is everything or God is in everything, but is rather a truthful declaration that says that God is at work in everything that occurs in the known universe. He is above all. He is in control of all things. He is through all. He is working through all things. And He is in us. He is working in us. He is unified in all that He does. That gives great comfort, especially in a day and an age where we just we question what God is doing. We can look back to this verse in verse 6 and say that God is doing everything unified. There's a purpose to what, behind what God is doing, and He is at work. So you and I can sit back among the chaos of our world and realize that despite what we're going through, despite what we're seeing, God's still at work. And we can praise Him for that. He is one. He is unified. And leads me to ask this question because you know, of this, this challenge. Are you seeking unity in the body of Christ? kind of touched on this already, but I want us to see how important this is. Paul lays out in verses 4-6 through six how we have a one faith, one hope. We're all unified in that regard. Are we working to maintain that unity? If God is unified and He is, are we seeking that unity in ourselves? Are we seeking to promote disunity? Are we seeking to promote our own agenda and make ourselves large and in charge. When in reality, God wants everyone to work together in unity and in peace with each other, to be unified. Many churches are not like that today. There's different factions that are warring within themselves, in the church body, to, to have control. They're not unified. In the result, they struggle. But we as a church, we need to be unified as, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, unified with one another, unity together, so that we can advance his mission in the world. We all have expectations of ourselves, don't we? There are things that we, we lay out for ourselves, perhaps each day, each week, that we want to accomplish. Well, this morning, I hope we've seen that God has some expect, expectations for us as his church. And to be frank with you this morning, they are more important expectations than you and I have in daily life. 
What are those expectations? You behave like you belong. You act in a way that reflects your calling. You walk worthy of your calling. You practice Christ-like character. You engage in life with one another with this meekness and gentleness, patiently enduring, bearing with one another in love, tolerating each other, even in your differences. And you maintain unity because your faith is based in it. And as we live in a world that is dark and dying, let us be the church who lives like it so that we can not only glorify God, but show Him to the world and show how the body of Christ is truly to live. May that be our cause even this week as we go out.